Our scripture reading this morning uh, is going to be taken from Romans chapter 15. We're going to continue this morning uh, at our look at the book of Romans. Uh, We are kind of in the home stretch of this book that we've been working through for the past uh, two years now, uh, on and off. We call it the Mysterious Absolutes. Hopefully, uh, it's been a rich discussion for you. Uh, It's been powerful for me, I know, to spend uh, this time in God's Word. So again, our passage this morning is taken from Romans 15, and I'm going to be reading from verses uh, 1 to 13. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's word. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that it is powerful, uh, that it shapes our hearts, it changes us as we interact with it through the power of your Spirit. So we pray, Father, that we would hear your voice this morning because we need to hear it. We pray that you would shape and mold our hearts because they need to be shaped and molded. And so we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you've been with us uh, for the past few weeks in this kind of, these kind of latter sections of the book of Romans, you'll know uh, that we've been looking at one specific controversy that had come up in this very young church uh, of Rome. And this church was in a very important city at a very important time. And yet, despite its importance, a great controversy had arisen in the church. And so what Paul is doing in these last few chapters is he's attempting to bring the majesty of the gospel, the power of this message that we center ourselves around, He's bringing the power of the gospel, he's mustering it together and bringing it to bear upon a very practical, you might even say mundane concern that had arisen within the church. Because the church had been divided, it had been divided between two different groups or divisions, 
And Paul recognized that if he didn't address these things, if, if not everyone was committed to bringing the gospel to bear on this situation, that it could be very threatening for this church. It could bring an end to the church if the division is not addressed. And so there are two groups that we've looked at. One of the groups rep- was represented by Jews uh, who had come to faith in Jesus Christ But their problem was that they had a hard time letting go of the historic behaviors of Judaism, some of the the dietary laws, uh, some of the Sabbath keeping. And so what Paul is saying is that their identity has not been wholly rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. In some ways, they were still placing their identity and their significance in their behavior, um, in their tradition. And in their history, they were still living as if somehow their acceptance in God's eyes was rooted in their behavior, rooted in the things that they were doing. And so what Paul does is he labels this group as the weak group. But there's also another group that Paul addresses here, and those were Gentiles, most likely, who had had come to faith in Christ, uh, not out of any sort of religious history, but probably out of a certain measure of paganism. And this group had no problem placing their identity in Christ, not in what they ate or how they kept the Sabbath. Their conscience was in no ways burdened by any sort of tradition or ethnicity. And they, because of that, they had fully embraced the freedom that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and Paul labels this group the strong because they had rooted their identity in this message of the gospel. But this is the group that Paul seems predominantly to be addressing in this section. But the reality is both of these groups struggled with one another. There's no question that the Jews looked at the Gentiles. They looked at this other group and said, they were too licentious. They are taking this freedom too far. They're taking it farther than it should be. And no doubt the Gentiles were looking at the Jews and they were saying, well, they're too legalistic. They're still, still too trapped by the laws and the traditions and their ethnicity. Don't they know that, that Jesus has come to free us from all that? And so you have these two groups and they're passing judgment on one another. They're condemning one another. And all of this was really threatening the unity of this church in Rome. So Paul goes after it. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He goes after it. And what he does in our passage is he lays out a principle for them. He gives them two reasons for that principle rooted in the history of Christ. And then he reminds them of their aim or their mission. And so he starts with the principle, and you see it very clearly in verse 1. The principle is this, that the strong must bear with the weak. He says this, verse 1, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Growing up, I was uh, the youngest of three children, and uh, I had an older brother, and my older brother was uh, 10 years older than me, so there was a big difference between he and I. And uh, it was not really an issue or a problem at any point, but then when I became uh, about three or four years old, and I was starting to play a lot and do a lot of fun things and be very active, uh, I always wanted to play with my bigger brother. 
But of course, he was 14 years old at this point. He was a, a teenager himself, and uh, he would begrudgingly play with me, but he entertained me a lot. He did a lot of things for me. And I can remember playing sports with him and playing games with him, and I would always lose. I would always lose because he was, he was 10 years older than me. He was far superior in every aspect to me uh, in all sorts of different ways. But then I can remember at some point when I was three or four years old, every once in a while I would win the game. Whatever the game was, I would win the game and I would feel like a million bucks when I was able to beat my brother. But was I really winning the game? Of course, we all know I wasn't. What was my brother doing? He was letting his three or four year old little brother win. What he was doing, even though he was superior to me in all ways, what he was doing is he was letting me win. He was bearing with my weaknesses in order to build me up as a person. Interestingly enough, my, I, I have a 10 years uh, between my oldest and my youngest now as children, and I see my oldest playing with his little siblings and often doing the very same thing, bearing with their weaknesses in order to build them up and even make them smile. You see, what Paul is speaking to here is he's speaking to the strong, And he doesn't tell them that it would be nice if they just simply helped out the weak. Just throw them a bone or cut them some slack or let them win a game every once in a while. No, what he tells them is much stronger. He tells them that it is their obligation to bear with the struggles of the weak. And don't miss the the real strength and the poignancy of Paul's words here to the church. You see, sometimes I think we forget. I think we forget that when it comes to the gospel, the gospel doesn't present us with just strong suggestions or tips. What the gospel does is it obligates us. And in this case, it obligates us to bear with the weak, especially within the church community, within God's family that he has placed around us. We are obligated to shoulder the burdens of those who are around us. And the opposite is true. If we're obligated to bear their burdens, we are not obligated to please ourselves. That, of course, is the the cultural model that we are around all the time. But instead, what Paul says is we are obligated to live for the good of the other, to live in service to them, even when in our own minds we think they just need to grow up a little bit. They just need to mature some more. You see, friends, I think so much of what we get in trouble with in Christianity in America is this. So much of Christianity in America reduces God to some sort of heavenly Santa Claus whose whole purpose is to make our lives more pleasurable. All God ever does is affirm us or make us feel better about ourselves. And so when we believe that, it changes how we pray to God. Our prayers just simply become asking God to get on board with our own desires and to help us to please ourselves. And when we buy into that, we can't imagine a God who would ever place hard demands upon us. But friends, this is not the God that we read about in the Scriptures. Because the God of the Scriptures bids us to do something something impressive and wild. He bids us to come and die. 
to die to our desires, to die to our pleasures, to die to our own will and wishes, and instead to live for the sake of other people, to place the needs of the weak, to place the needs of those around us above our own. Back in my youth ministry days, we'd take the kids on retreats, and one of the first things you'd have to do with kids is tell them the rules. These are the rules of the retreat. But we didn't want to start with such a downer. So we would say, these are the strong suggestions that we offer to you, and they might have a little bit of consequences if you break these strong suggestions. Well, I think what Paul is saying here is not a strong suggestion. He is giving us an obligation. We are to obligate to tie ourselves to the burdens of the weak who are around us. Well, the question becomes why? Why would we ever have to do this? Why would Paul be asking us to do this? Whenever my kids ask me why, I say, because I told you so, and I'm your parent, right? Well, in some ways, Paul's answer to the church is just as simple. When they come to him and say, why should we burden ourselves with others? Why should we burden ourselves on the behalf of the weak? Paul's answer is this. You do it because of Christ. You don't do it because it's the right thing or the nice thing to do. Not because you might feel like it or need to live up to some holy reputation. Or even because you might feel guilty if you don't do it. You do it because of Christ. Do it because of his example. And you do it because of his mission. And so we see one of the reasons for this principle is Christ's example. Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then he says later in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That is that weak group that Paul is speaking about. Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. You see, friends, the entire story of the gospel centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It centers around one who was strong, who became weak in order to bear burdens. What the gospel story tells us is that Jesus, who came to this earth, was God in the flesh. We call that the incarnation. And the incarnation itself is a cosmic example of one who was strong becoming weak. Because when you think about it, the God of the universe, the God of all power, became one of us. We're going to think about it this Christmas season, that God became a squealing newborn child dependent on parents who were teenagers living in poverty. The gospel tells us that the, that the God of all power, when he ministered on earth, patiently endured with 12 men who were consistently and faithfully always getting it wrong. And then towards the end of Christ's life, we see the God of all might allowing his creation to spit on him, to mock him, to stretch out his hands and nail them to a cross. Why did he do it? Why did Christ do this? Why did the strong become the weak? He did it because we ourselves, we are the weak. The gospel tells us that our sin has left us spiritually bankrupt. 
It tells us that our sinful rebellion has made us enemies with God. And so because of all that, each one of us are spiritually anemic, clinging to life simply by the patient forbearance of God. You see, our weakness had left us without any hope left to ourselves, without any hope of recovery. And so God did something about it. And so he who was strong became weak. He bore our burdens. He shouldered our sins and transgressions. He absorbed the burden we could not bear by his sacrifice on the cross. He became weak so that we could be made strong. See, friends, it was the will of God and the love of his people that obligated him to joyfully bear your burdens and mine. And so Paul's argument is this. If Jesus Christ has done that for you, can't you also bear with the weak in your midst? Can you set aside your own pleasures? Can you disadvantage yourself for the sake of others? Christ has done this for you, and he calls you to imitate his example as his rescued ones. But it was really more than just his example. We also see that it was the fullness of his mission. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, Paul talking to the strong about the weak, he says to them, Christ has welcomed them. Christ has welcomed them into the family of God. They have been chosen and adopted. They've been justified. They have been made right. They have been grafted into the family of God. And because he has welcomed them, because he has accepted them, then who are you to reject them? Who are you to judge them? Who are you to exclude them from the community? You see, Christ's mission was to set aside his strength and pleasure to bear with the burdens of the weak. He set aside his pleasures by making that ultimate sacrifice for you to bring you from life to death. And so he calls his people to do the very same thing. Now, friends, I don't think I have to tell you how countercultural this is to our world, how different this is than the message of the world that we hear each day and uh, each week. This past weekend, uh, my wife and I spent uh, the weekend in Washington, D.C., and as we were there, I was recalling a a conversation that I had with a church-planting friend uh, who was ministering in D.C., and, and we were just talking about what it was like to pastor in urban contexts and And we were talking about how it seems like each and every city has its own particular idol. And we were talking about that. And and I asked him, well, what is is the particular idol of Washington, D.C.? And he said, hands down, the idol is power. Everybody is after power in Washington, D.C. He said the mantra is do what you can to achieve power, and it doesn't matter who you step on in the process. But friends, I think we would all agree that that isn't just a problem unique to folks that live in Washington, D.C., because the way of our world is that the strength and the strong overwhelm the weak. 
Think of the absolute million examples from history and current events that support this philosophy. Do what you need to do in order to be successful successful and get ahead. Push towards excellence, and it doesn't matter who you step on in the process. Friends, we all know this plays out in big and little ways in our life every day. And sadly, sadly, it often is just as prevalent in the church as it is in the world. But God calls us to something that is profoundly different. He calls His church to be profoundly unique, to be different. I had the privilege um, for my seminary work, I had the privilege of uh, studying in a very well-known and, and some would say prestigious seminary here in the Northeast. Uh, it was founded uh, out of Princeton Seminary, and so it, it carries with it um, a lot of the reputation and uh, intellectual firepower of the Princeton tradition. And so because of that, people would travel all over the world to study in this seminary, and it would often uh, attract some of the best professors from all over the world as well. And I can remember one year I was taking, uh, enrolled in a church history course, and uh, everybody was very excited for this church history course because we're getting a new professor uh, from Great Britain. I think he was coming uh, from Cambridge. And so everybody was excited to to learn from him, to hear his accent every day, uh, and to be a part of his class. And I will never forget how he started uh, the semester. Before he did anything else, he said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said to us, you are all students in an incredibly well-respected seminary. And in this class and over the years you are going to acquire an intellectual reservoir of strength that will in many ways be unparalleled. He said, but you have a choice to make. He said, you can use your strength to make others feel small, or you can use it to build others up. The choice is up to you, and I have never forgotten those words. You see, friends, some of us have intellectual strength that has been given to us by God. Some of us have economic strength. Some of us have strength of opportunities. Some of us have strength of resources. The question becomes, how are you using whatever strength God has given to you? You see, the way of the world is to use your strength to make others feel small and to make yourself feel great. But the gospel way is to use your strength to build others up, to intentionally disadvantage yourself for the sake of the weak who are in your midst. This is the way of Christ, and it ought to be the way of his people as well. And so Paul makes one final point about why we do all this, about what is the aim that is behind all this. And he says it in verse 6 to 7. He says, the aim of all this is the glory of God in worship. Listen to verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, the community of faith should be unlike anything else in the world because we ultimately do not live for our own glory. 
You see, that was part of the problem of the church in Rome. Both groups were living for their own pleasure. Both groups were living for their own glory instead of living for the pleasure and the glory of God. You see, our confession says something really profound right at the beginning. It says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And what that means is this, that our chief purpose, the way we were designed by God, is to live for His glory and not for our own. And when we do, when we live, in, we will live in accordance with how we were created to be. And that glory is best exemplified when we glorify God together in worship. You see, these divisions over non-essentials have no place in God's community. And so what do we do? We take our eyes off of ourselves. We take our eyes off of our own pleasures, off of our own glory. We even, to some degree, take our eyes off of each other. We stop comparing ourselves to one another. We stop casting judgment upon one another in order to feel better about ourselves. And instead, what we do is we cast our eyes on the glory of God and the work of our Savior in the gospel. His glory and the worship of God then becomes the singular focus of our lives, and He and His glory become the orienting center of who we are. Let's pray.